Good morning. Um, I, I, I just I want to begin by saying uh, you all are the the most uh, the most generous group of people that I know. In the beginning of Ordinary Life, 20 plus years ago, we didn't have the kind of organization that we have now. And there was a woman, uh, some of you may remember her, and if you do, you remember her quite fondly, Maxine Fantini, who served as our treasurer. And um, we um, just took money, if people want to give it, and didn't know what to do with it. So we gave it to St. Paul's to do with what the, whether they wanted to, or to worthy projects. We supported some medical missions in uh, Malawi. We supported medical mission clinic in Bolivia. And for a long time, our church was very active in Bolivia. Um, but we didn't have the organization that we have now. And, and I'm really grateful for that. I'm grateful for the Kiva contribution. And, and thank you for managing that. And um, I'm just grateful that you all do this. So every penny that you happen to give has been diverted from my jet fund. <laughs> you know, I used to joke about that. I mean, I still joke about it, but we got word that somebody actually took it seriously. You might remember uh, there was a, there is an African-American evangelist in Florida of all places, which is where the anti-woke stuff is all coming from now. And uh, Cray Flow Dollar was his name, a wonderful name for a prosperity gospel evangelist. Cray Flow Dollar, and he needed more money for another jet. And I got wind of that, and I felt left out because I didn't even have my first jet. So I started joking about it, and then we found out that somebody who's online took it seriously. It's a joke. It ought not be a joke, but... I didn't know it. <laughs> so make sure your phone's turned off, and thanks to the people at the back of the room, um, uh, John and Tim and, and Lauren and Joshua, who make sure that this goes out to those of you who are watching online. And um, I, I never Google analytics, but I occasionally find out because Tim will tell me. Uh, I know that we have people who watch Ordinary Life from the East Coast, from the West Coast. We, I know we have a family that watch from Scotland. So um, welcome all of you pajama people. So let's begin in silence. Do whatever you need to do to bring yourself inside the space. Just be present and open. If it helps to close your eyes and uh, just look down, you can do that. Try to be here. Grace be in our heads and in our thinking. Grace be in our eyes and in our seeing. Grace be in our ears and in our hearing. Grace be in our mouths and in our speaking. And grace be in our hearts and in our understanding. And grace be in our ends and our departing. I hope you find what you came looking for today. And... Um, my intent is to offer stuff that's useful, and uh, it won't be unless you take it away from here and put it into practice. So, know about that. So, no matter who you are, no matter where you are in your spiritual journey, you are welcome here. And although Roddy Young uh, mentioned this, I want to uh, bring your attention to the fact that next Sunday is uh, Sunday when we celebrate St. Paul's Day. St. Paul's will be 117 years old this coming week. And I celebrate this church because without it, this would not exist. And so I'm very grateful to St. Paul's and that it is the kind of place where a group like this uh, can gather. So next Sunday, and there's no charge for this, Come back at 4 o'clock, and you will hear a wonderful concert by our choirs, uh, by the uh, musical group, I'm blocking on their name. Does it say? Um, uh, the Mercury Chamber Orchestra will be here. 
um, a member of our own church is uh, head of that. So take advantage of that. There'll be a wonderful concert, and there'll be a meal after. There's no charge for that, but uh, you need RSVP if you want a place at the meal. So uh, the sooner you can do that, the better. And also, as Roddy also announced, and all of this will be on the Ordinary Life website, we are co-sponsoring with Beth Yashuron an evening with Susanna Heschel. Susanna Heschel teaches at Dartmouth. She is the daughter of Rabbi Joshua Heschel, who is probably um, <clears throat> the most outstanding, <clears throat> he's deceased now, but most outstanding Jewish rabbi scholar in American, social activist. <clears throat> you can go on... Um, the podcast of uh, Speaking of Faith and find interviews with him that will really stir you. It's going to be a great evening. Again, there's no charge for this, but if you want to have a seat, I think you should RSVP, all that. Okay, you here <clears throat> and ready? Let me see if I am. So, once upon a time, those words captivate people. I mean, once upon a time. We all love a good story, right? Good stories can stop us in our tracks. They inform us. They entertain us. They can transport us to other times and places. But most importantly, they can transform us. They can really, a good story, once it works its way inside you, can make you a different person. And likely, our species mastered, when it mastered language, we began telling stories. Uh, we're now learning that our ancestors told stories not only sitting around campfires, but by drawing pictures on cave walls. Um, as I understand it, the Epic of Gilgamesh, Gilgamesh is the oldest story we have in the English language, about 4,000 years old. It is rivaled by a story that's in the Hebrew Scripture, a poem story called Job. Um, runs it a close second. And spiritual teachers, in whatever tradition, have always utilized stories to get their points across. So stories have been created to tell how the earth was formed, how people populate the earth, how animals got their names, what happens to us when we die. And I know that I myself am always on the lookout for a good story to share with you because stories say what can't be said in any other way. <clears throat> when Nathan the prophet wanted to confront David, about David's having abused and misused his power by taking another man's wife and by having that man kill, Nathan told a story. And it's a story that allowed David to see himself without at first realizing that it was he himself that he was looking at. So Nathan went to David and he told him a story about a man who had a hundred sheep but he went and took another poor man's one sheep in order to provide a meal for that rich man's guest when he appeared. And Nathan got so incensed that he said, that man should die. <laughs> and Nathan got up in David's face and said, thou art the man. And Nathan had a lot more courage than I do. He spoke truth to power, but he found a way to do it that transformed David. He was a very courageous way, man. So one of the ways our awareness is increased, and this current series is about awareness, looked at from many different angles and ways, is about hearing stories. Sufism, the mystical branch of Islam, has gifted the world with countless stories, incredible stories, incredible poems. I'm thinking of the poetry of Rumi. I'm thinking of the poetry of Hafiz. Many of those are names you've heard before. Perhaps you are not as familiar with a female poet by the name of Rabia, R-A-B-I-A, from Basra. Uh, she lived about 500 years before Rumi, 
And scholars say that she is the person who most influenced Rumi's poetry. She was like a mystical prophet in her own time. The story is told, and again, myth or fact, who knows, but it's a great story, that Rabio ran through the streets one day of her town carrying a torch in one hand and a bucket of water in the other. Now, Old Testament prophets acted out their prophecies too. Uh, Hosea did it by marrying a prostitute. You might remember that story. It's a good story in the, in the Hebrew scripture. And when asked what she was doing, she said, I want to put out the fires of hell and burn down the rewards of paradise. They block the way to Allah. I do not want people to worship from fear of punishment or for the promise of reward, but simply for the love of Allah. Now, folks, that's good stuff. That's a good story. Now, the Sufi tradition also gives us a character about whom not only many stories were told, but actually there is a holy day set aside into the Islamic calendar for this character. His name is Nesreddin, although he goes by many other names in the tradition. There actually was a philosopher by such a name in the Islamic tradition, and like most characters of his time, this is a long time ago, a lot of history that we have about him is likely suspect, but Nesreddin shows up in countless stories, um, <clears throat> in thousands of stories. Sometimes the stories are witty, sometimes they're wise, most often not. Sometimes he appears as a fool. Most of the stories about him are jokes, which is why I like them so much, because I like jokes. So here is one. Nasreddin was once invited to deliver a sermon. When he got up into the pulpit, he asked the people, Do you know what I'm going to say? The audience replied, No. So he said, I have no desire to speak to people who don't even know what I'll be talking about. So he left. <laughs> well, the people felt embarrassed. They called him back again the next day. And this time, he got up and he asked the same question. Do you know what I'm going to be speaking about, and when the people said yes, Nesreddin said, well, since you already know what I'm going to say, I won't waste my any more of your time, so he left. So they were in a quite a country. They really wanted to hear this wise man, so they asked him to come back the next week, and they had consulted among themselves about what to do. So he got in the pulpit, and he asked the same question. Do you know what I'm going to say? And half the people said yes, and half the people said no. And he said this is wonderful. Those of you who know can tell those of you who don't. And he turned around and left. As I said, there are thousands of stories about Nesreddin. Here's one that fits uh, also our current theme. Nesreddin had lost his ring in the living room of their home. He searched and searched for it. But since he couldn't find it, he went out in the yard and he began looking for it there. His wife, who saw what he was doing, asked, what are you doing? You lost your ring in the living room. Why are you looking for it in the yard? Nasreddin stroked his beard and said, the room is too dark. I can't see very well. I came out into the yard to look for my ring because there's much more light out here. Now, the Buddhist tradition, especially Zen Buddhism, is just rich with that tradition. They call them teaching stories. And now, this may or may not surprise you, but I had my first serious encounter with Buddhism when I entered the seminary, a Protestant and Baptist at the, yeah, that seminary. Now, why was that? Well, because at the time... People that you would know, like Father Thomas Keating or Father Basil Pennington, Trappist monks in the same tradition as Thomas um, uh, Merton, those who are credited with beginning centering prayer in our contemporary time, they weren't on the scene. Not to say that centering prayer was something they discovered as new. It goes back to the middle of the 4th century, 
maybe earlier, but we can document it there. But at the time of the Reformation, spiritual practices, you have to remember people didn't, most people couldn't read. So at the time of the Reformation, spiritual practices moved into the hands of the specialist, the priest, the clerics. And in Protestantism, religion went from the head up. So there was no emphasis really on transformational spiritual practices. It was all about what you believed and whether you were right or not. So we were taught in the seminary to turn to Eastern religions to learn about meditation and contemplation. Both these are different things, and as we go forward in this series, I will make a distinction between them. So I want to offer a couple side notes before going forward. Walking the human path with religious and spiritual intention and awareness is not complicated. You do not need a PhD for this. The primary teacher in the Christian tradition said, unless you become as a child, not a PhD, but unless you become as a child, you're not going to make it. So awareness and mindfulness should be matters so simple that a child can understand them and so complex and profound that none of us can finish plumbing their depths. Now, at this point in time and in these talks, I'm going to say that what we're shooting for is curiosity, just being curious. And in Buddhism, there is a saying that, you know, the, the teachings that Buddhism offer are not the moon. They are the finger pointing toward the moon. So what is the moon that the fingers are pointing toward? That's what the stories are trying to get across. And one aspect of this is wonderment. And we're going to devote all of next Sunday to the topic of wonderment. So one aspect of awareness in Buddhism is what's called mindfulness. Mindfulness is a state of awareness that is non-judgmental, so easy to say, so very difficult to do. As I said, it's not complicated. It's simply being open, not defended, being present, not somewhere else, and being curious, not already learned. Open, present, curious. Those are the requirements. You don't have to believe anything, just those things. And this takes courage because it requires vulnerability. It means just being present to what is. No fingers, just the moon. Very challenging. There's a famous Zen saying that goes, in the beginner's mind there are many possibilities, in the experts there are few. So we want beginner's mind, many possibilities. So a major point that I'm hoping to make in this talk today so far is that there is an enormous value in looking outside of your current tradition, the one that you're familiar with, for lessons and insights that can enhance your own spiritual understanding and growth. Because they are different from us. They seem fresh and invigorating and not, oh my, I've heard that before. So, <clears throat> summary so far, we're talking about awareness. And so far, I've told you three stories that are applicable to this awareness. The first is a story from Rabia, who's going to burn down the mansions of heaven and put out the fires of hell so that people are drawn to the path, not because of craving and aversion, but because of a desire to connect with the sacred. Got that? Because so much of Protestant Christianity has been about craving and aversion. Stay out of hell, go to heaven when you die, be right, all that stuff. It doesn't, it, it, this, this thing gets in the way of practicing compassion in the present moment. And then I told you two stories from the Islamic Sufi tradition about Nesreddin. They say we already have the truth because it's within us, and that frequently we look in the wrong place to find the truth. So those three stories, you can take those home. 
So after that, here's a story from the Zen tradition. Every time I meet a Zen practitioner or someone who claims to be Buddhist, I will ask, tell me your favorite teaching story and to see what their teaching stories are. Now, some of these you may have heard before. I've done some of them in the, in the past, but here's one of my favorites. A man goes to see a Zen master, and he's seeking spiritual guidance and enlightenment. And after pleasantries are exchanged, the man is seated across from the Zen master, and he asks the Zen master, what truth can you teach me? And the Zen master says, do you like tea? And the man says, yes. So the Zen master pours him a cup of tea. The cup fills and starts to overflow, but the Zen master continues to pour. And the tea continues to spill out up over the cup, out onto the saucer, out onto the table, and begins to flow over the edge of the table, over the, onto the floor, but the Zen master continues to pour. And of course, the man begins to protest, and he says, stop. The cup is full. It's spilling over. The Zen master stops and puts the pot down and looks at the man and says, return to me when you are empty. So the point is that we need to empty ourselves of our preconceived beliefs in order to be open to a broader, more complex reality. What we mean when we use the word reality is this combination of simplicity and complexity. So if I'm holding on to something from the past or from some earlier developmental phase that no longer fits with what is, I'm not in a position to be open to and receptive of new truth. I had an experience of that this week when I encountered some people I haven't seen in a number of years and we sat down and they asked me what I was doing and I tried to tell them about this and they immediately needed to tell me where they were in terms of Christianity. You know, it was a test. Now, I said last week, we live in a world, and you can look at the paper if you want to to check this out, a, a, a sizable portion of people believe in things that belong to an earlier stage of adult development, not to an advanced stage. It's like wearing the same clothes you wore in junior high. The sad fact is that we, we live in a time when people believe a lot of weird things, especially in the, in the terms of religion. Now, I think people believe weird things for two reasons. First of all, they believe something that isn't true. Now, if somebody says they committed a murder because God told them to, we know that's nuts. But if somebody says they believe that God literally dictated the words that are in their Holy Scripture, a lot of people say, well, that makes sense to me. <laughs> the story of the star that led the wise men to the baby Jesus is a wonderful cosmic parable, but it isn't literally true. If you doubt that, now we got a lot of white light wash out in, in Houston, but if you doubt that sometime, go and look at a star and see if you can tell which house it's directly over. <laughs> or people believe weird things because they reject something that is true. Now, I will give you a truth, and you can see where it lands with you. The death penalty does not reduce the number of murders that are committed in any culture. That's a fact. But a lot of people don't believe that. It's like when uh, it was discovered by Joseph Lister, I used this last week, that germs cause infection. There were a lot of people who said, mm, don't believe that. Now, of course, Jesus was a master storyteller. Why didn't I lead with any of his stories today? Because our cup is full. We've heard them. 
We've heard them over and over and over and over. I don't know that in the church. Our monkey minds. So I'm going to read you two stories from the Jesus tradition. These are found in the 13th chapter of a book we call the Gospel of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, the 13th chapter particularly, the Gospel of Matthew, but the 13th chapter particularly is crammed full of stories. Go home and read it. As a matter of fact, there is a verse in the 13th chapter of Matthew that translated said, all Jesus did that day was tell stories, a day full of storytelling. That's in the Bible. Now, the primary thing that Jesus talked about was the Astros, the Texans, money. Well, he did talk a lot about material things, actually. It was a thing called the kingdom. That's how we translate it. Jesus talked a lot about the kingdom. That's the way it was translated when I was in the seminary. We were taught that it was translated the kingdom, it should be actually translated the empire, because those writings were created in the time of the Roman Empire, and Jesus was speaking against the Roman Empire. Now, biblical studies, archaeological studies, and other things have advanced to the point of believing that that's not true. Jesus was not a political commentator. So that the word that he used that we have translated kingdom and horribly mistranslated kingdom of heaven, getting out of here, it should actually be translated community, community of empowerment, an empowering community. So in his teachings and in his behavior, what he did and what we call the miracles, his, particularly his eating habits, Jesus was demonstrating a different kind of community that people could come into, be part of. So here are two very brief stories that he told. <clears throat> God's community empowerment is like a treasure hidden in a field for years and then accidentally found by a trespasser. The finder is ecstatic. What a find! And proceeds to sell everything he owns to raise money and buy that field. Then Almost immediately after that, Jesus tells another story. God's community empowerment is like a jewel merchant on the hunt for excellent pearls. Finding one that is flawless, he immediately sells everything and buys it. Now, we're going to be returning in these talks again and again and again to the teachings of Jesus. As I said in the section of the narrative we know as Matthew, that just packed with stories. So it's not the empire of God. It's an empowering community that people were invited into. In the first parable, Jesus says that this realm of experiential reality is like a treasure hidden in a field. So therefore, it is something of great value which someone may discover, and it was seen as so valuable that people were willing to give up everything in order to have it. The reality that we are talking about is inside you. It is lying hidden in you, waiting to be discovered. And if you discover it, you will be willing, happily, to give up other goals and ambitions in order to make this discovery a reality in your life. That's a story. Now, whether that becomes true for you or not, of course, would be up to you. That's the first parable. The second parable is, let me back up and do that. The second parable says, it sounds like it's the same as the first, but in, in, in the first, the treasure is a kingdom that we search for, and in the second, we are the treasure that is found. And the truth is, both and, this experiential reality is something we both find within ourselves as an inner treasure, and at the same time, it's something we, that is searching to find us. 
we are of supreme value. And this supreme value that we are is not something that we have earned. It is not something we deserved. It is just a given about us. Now, very often the message that people have gotten from organized religion is that there's something wrong with them. You're guilty. You're bad. You need saving. You're worthless sinners. And if that was your experience, I'm sorry for that. That's very wounding. And I want to be clear that there is not a single syllable in the authentic teachings of Jesus that support that point of view, not one syllable. Many people think of Jesus as someone who was sent to earth by God to change God's mind about humans. If I just managed to get myself killed for them, then will you like them? The, miss, the point of Jesus' mission and teaching is to get people to change their minds about God. God is a loving, gracious, inviting, accepting presence. John Sanford, who uh, is, you would know because when Holly and I were working our way through the Gospel of of Thomas, uh, the Gospel of John, we used Sanford's uh, writing commentary on the Gospel. Sanford says, if we know what Jesus meant by the kingdom of God, we shall possess the key to his teachings. And he said that in a book called The Kingdom Within, very readable uh, book. You know one of the reasons that I keep repeating things in here? Is that they're so easy to forget. At least that's my experience. That's the reason I read the same things over and over and over for months or months and, and sometimes longer in my own daily spiritual practices because I can forget them so easily. I love the word um, reminding and I love the word remembering because we needed to have new minds. We needed to take the separated aspects of ourselves and remember. So these teachings that I am offering are not about how to walk a spiritual path. They are, um, this is a repetition, just want you to know. That's why I said, this is why I repeat myself. This is a repetition. These teachings, are not about how to walk a spiritual path. They are certainly not about how to walk a religious path. Now, they can be about religious matters because I am con uh, committed to teaching about religious literacy. There is so much sanctified ignorance among people who call themselves Christians. It is really so sad to me that so many of us have to define ourselves religiously by what we are not. Several years ago when my friend um, Dr. Matt Russell was on the staff here, uh, Matt preached at the 945 service every Sunday when we had a 945 service back before COVID. And before he left, Matt and I had such great plans for the future. That didn't happen. But one Sunday at that service, Matt preached a sermon that um, irritated someone in the congregation. And they let Matt know it when they left. And they ended their diatribe by, by saying to Matt, um, are you even a Christian? And Matt said, I don't know. Tell me what you think a Christian is and I will tell you whether I am that or not. So for many people, being a Christian has to do with what you believe and where you belong, not with whether you have a compassionate heart, not with whether you are open to everyone. I mean, that exchange was just absolutely brilliant. Are you a Christian?
I don't know. Not knowing is such a valuable spiritual practice. When I was that seminary student I was describing to you a minute ago, I knew so much. I was so sure. I could, I could define God for you when I was in seminary. We had all the labels, all the titles, all the names, omnipotent, omnipresent, omnipresent. I would, we knew God. And then I started reading people like Meister Eckhart and people like the Cloud of Unknowing. And I thought, well, I don't know God so well at all. Tell me what you think a Christian is, and I will tell you whether I am that or not. So our challenge is learning about and then developing the courage and curiosity to do the work of being fully alive human beings. And I hope you see <clears throat> that it's possible to fit the description of what is meant by being a good Christian and miss entirely this business about compassion and being connected with the sacred. That was Jesus' criticism of the religious people of his day. They knew the sacred. They had rules about the sacred. They had regulations about the sacred. But their beliefs and regulations and rules got in the way of the humanizing, transforming capacity and power of spirituality they claimed to know and be protectors of. They trivialized it by reducing it to rules and practices that said who's in and who's out. Kind of reminds me of what's going on in the Methodist church today. Being alive as a human being should evoke radical amazement. Now, having said all of that, skirting right up to the edge of Christian heresy, I want to be clear. I believe that the teachings and traditions of the Christian tradition rightly understood, meaning the way I understand it, <laughs> can make significant contributions to the, to the developmental human journey. I believe that because I see the tradition as one of a spirituality of becoming, not of believing. Spirituality is our way of living in relationship to that treasure for which we seek and which at the same time is who we are. That's what spirituality to me is. And this kind of living is not normal and it is not automatic. Now where I've chosen to focus and settle into the present time on our awareness uh, <clears throat> is, the, is that awareness is this first crucial critical step in understanding our, and living our relationship with this treasure that we are and which wants to find us. Are you with me so far? Am I being sufficiently clear or unclear? So here's another teaching story. <clears throat> a student of a famous Zen master after completing 10 years of training went to visit his master one rainy day. As he entered the room, the Zen master greeted him with a question. Did you leave your sandals and umbrella on the porch? Yes, the student replied. The master continued, did you place your umbrella to the right of your sandals or to the left? To the right, the student answered, confidently pleased with himself. And were you breathing in or out when you slipped off your left sandal? And not knowing the answer, the student realized at once that he had not attained full awareness and he immediately extended his time as a student. Now that story may strike you as ridiculous. But it does understand the importance of and the difficulty of living with awareness. I grew up a Baptist. 
I was taught as a Baptist that if you accept Jesus as your personal Savior, that's it. You're saved. And boy, a big thing in the Baptist tradition is once you're saved, you're always saved. And we would have fights with the Church of Christ people about whether you could fall from grace or not. But once saved, you didn't have to do anything. So many of Jesus' teachings and his, his stories are about awareness. They're about a paying attention, having eyes that really see and ears that really hear. Now, if you want to, you go back. Be a good Sunday afternoon activity for you because good Christians don't turn on the television on Sunday. <laughs> Watch that football game. Read in Jesus' narrative. Read the Gospel of Matthew in a really good translation. And see how many stories, see how many teachings and teaching events that have to do with the matter of awareness just in the Gospel of Matthew. Blind people are caused to see. Deaf people are caused to hear. People are accused of being asleep when wakefulness is needed. Dead people are brought to life. Folks, that's a metaphor. It's not literal. The entirety of, of the Jesus story is looked at through this lens of awareness. And it tells us that the transformation of consciousness is radical and that it is fundamental to the spiritual journey into full, human, into full humanness. So the spiritual life starts with awareness. If you have limited awareness, you have a limited spiritual life. If you have shallow awareness, you have shallow spiritual life. How can we be aware of whatever we mean when we use the word God if we're not even aware of what's around us? And it's illusion to think that achieving awareness is something you get once and for all and lock it in place. That's not been my experience. I have to wake up and do it again every day, again and again and again. Why? Because integral theory, remember that's where we started some weeks ago? Integral theory says we're always changing. We're growing or ought to be, and our circumstance is always evolving and changing. So as long as we draw breath, we've got this opportunity to discover and be discovered. Now, in Buddhism, this is so central that the very name Buddha means the awakened one. And it's said that soon after his enlightenment, the Buddha passed a man on the road, and the man noticed something different about this guy and asked him, are you a god? And Buddha said, no. Are you a magician? No. Wizard? No. Angel? No. What are you then? And Buddha said, I'm awake. And in Sufism, the tradition from which we learned about Nasreddin, the goal is to see things as if looking through the eyes of God. Meister Eckhart said that. So I've shared with you that currently part of my own daily spiritual practice is reading over a prayer written by the Trappist monk Thomas Merton. My Lord God, I have no idea where I'm going. I do not see the road ahead of me. I cannot know where it will end, nor do I really know myself. And the fact that I think I am following your will does not mean that I am actually doing so. But I believe the desire to please you does in fact please you. And I hope that I have that desire in all that I am doing. So as I've stayed with this prayer day after day after day after day for months, the question that has bubbled up in me, and you've got to do your own work about this sort of thing, is what does it mean to live our lives with and out of the desire to please God? Now, the kind of attention that I'm talking about in spiritual practice has a technical term. It's called contemplation. 
Contemplation is not the same as meditation, and I'll get into differentiation next week. Contemplation is the stance of being with what is without judgment or evaluation. Contemplation is the stance of being with what is without judgment or evaluation. That's why in so many traditions, meditation practice is focused on breathing. Breathing in and breathing out. Not something to judge. You don't control your breathing. I mean, you can, but you breathe. Your body breathes. And you just pay attention to what is happening. It's awareness. It's attention. It's intense inward openness. It's not about thinking. Thinking about your experience removes you from your experience. Thinking and knowing how to think is a good thing, but if it draws you away from the present moment, it's a danger. So thinking can be a valuable servant, but a terrible master. Now again, please don't think I'm talking about something that's complex or advanced or that's for monks or for spiritual avatars. This is so simple, a child can do it. Indeed, those of you who are parents know that your children have done it. As a matter of fact, a parent gets irritated with children when they are absorbed into something, right? And the parent says, would you pay attention to me? They are paying attention, but not to you <laughs> at the moment. So careful attention paid to anything is a doorway to sacred mystery. Regardless of how insignificant the object may seem to be, truly being aware of it has enormous spiritual potential. Now, the only thing that's hard about what I'm talking about is remembering to do it. What's so important about this practice is that it's focused on right here, right now. You cannot contemplate or be mindful about something in the past. You can remember it, but you can't be mindful of it. The present moment, this moment, is the ground on which we live. You can't live anywhere else. By the way, this is not narcissistic. It will not pull you away from other people. Being present is a gift you can be to give to other people. It irritates the bejabbers out of me when I'm with somebody and they are <clears throat> doing this. Yeah, and you were saying, that's just rude. It's being present to somebody is a gift. Now, you don't have to wait to do this. You can do it right now. You can quit listening to me and do it. Just pay attention to what's happening in your body right this minute, right now. It's where Vipassana meditation starts is doing body scans. Pay attention to your breath. Don't breathe. Don't not breathe. That would be bad. Just notice that you're breathing. Don't try to change anything about your breathing. Just notice it. Notice something around you. Give it your full undivided attention for three minutes. This is a doorway into the present moment. Learning to live with openness to the present is learning to be open to God. Now, I began today by telling you five stories from four different traditions having to do with paying attention, waking up, mindfulness, being here, and I just gave you an assignment, an etude, if you will. The word etude is a French word meaning study. You study a musical composition in order to be able to play it, so you study in order to take it. We went to the Houston Symphony this week, and um, we were going to hear a particular pianist play um, Chikasi's Piano Concerto Number no. 1, one of the best-known pieces of piano music in the world, fabulous piece. When I took piano, I learned a version of it to play in a piano recital. So we arrived at Jones Hall to discover that that pianist wasn't going to be there. And at the last minute, they had engaged another pianist to perform. Now, just imagine you're sitting at home minding your own business, 
right? And the phone rings, and you pick it up, and it's somebody saying, hey, uh, we wonder if you could come to Houston and play Tchaikovsky's Concerto Number no. 1 for us because our pianist can't be here. And you say, oh, sure, I'm ready. <laughs> and the guy did it. His name is Conrad Tao, and he was stunning. I mean, he walked out, sat down on the piano, and played those three movements, never looked at a sheet music note, played the whole thing so magnificently that he got only not only a sustained standing ovation, but a demand for an encore. It was fabulous. Life's going to do that to you. You're going along minding your own business, or it's perhaps true for so many of us minding somebody else's. And the call comes, your blood work shows precursor of bone cancer. The call comes, your child's been involved in an accident. The call comes, honey, I just found somebody else that's over between us. Rupert Murdoch is 93, just married his fourth wife. So, so when the call comes, you're going to be ready to sit down and play. It depends on whether you've practiced. I'm not threatening. This is just a description of what is. Being with what is is a skill that we learn after hours of practice. So in case you weren't paying attention, today's class is about paying attention. Here's your assignment. Now, there will be an exam. I just don't know when it will come. At least three times during the coming week, more if you're willing, stop and notice what is happening in your body. At least three times, more if you're willing, stop. And for three to five minutes, just pay attention to your breathing. We'll deal with what happens to the mind next week. Just. Pay attention to your breathing. And then at least three to five times this week, stop and pay close childlike attention to something around you. Give it your undivided attention, as long as it is not your phone. <laughs> now, you might want to begin this right away because you never know when the call is going to come. So I thought and I thought and I thought of the best way to bring this time today to a proper end. And here it is. So pay attention. No matter where you go this week, no matter what happens, remember this. You carry precious cargo, so watch yourself, and I'll see you here next Sunday. Thank you. Thank you.